Please listen carefully. I am here with Elizabeth Boyd. Elizabeth, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We have never met Elizabeth. We've talked once prior to this conversation, uh, also on Skype. But the reason why I've really wanted to have this conversation with you is mainly because you started popping up in my LinkedIn feed all the time. I got the feeling after reading just a couple of the blogs that, okay, there is not only a dedication and passion for retail here that we might share, but also there, there might be some really good topics of conversation that you and me we could have around uh, the world of retail. So I've really been looking forward to having this conversation, Elizabeth. Thank you for it. My pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you. I have to say that you're also the first person I have ever talked to who officially brands herself with a no-jerks policy. <laughs> it has served me well since 2015, so I stand by that policy. <laughs> And maybe I can get you to elaborate a little bit on that policy. But one of the things that we're probably going to talk about, and before I bring you on board, is that you have this cotton candy fashion, fshn.com blog, where you have more than 300 posts already. And I also have noticed that you have been ranked amongst the top 100 most productive blogs in the world. So yes. there's a lot of things we can grasp on here. But before we dig into retail and talking about your passion and topics on that, please give the listeners a little bit of an update on who you are and insight into who you are and, and your journey up until now. Sure. So I have been in retail. I've been a retailer for about 18 years. About three years ago, I stepped away from traditional retail roles when I started my blog, which started in uh, January 2016. And since then, I have been very fortunate to connect with a lot of people around the world who are interested, mostly retailers, but who are interested in leadership development, updating their policies and procedures, making them more functional and useful, and really aligning their team behind their company's values and their vision. Uh, so that has been a very exciting ride for me. I am thrilled and honored every time I get to work with a company. And uh, it's all due to my blog. It's taken me on a really exciting three-year adventure so far. Oh, great. And just not that it's about your resume or CV here, but, but in the past, what, kind of, uh, what, what made you go into retail and, and what kind of uh, functions and responsibilities have you worked with? My story is probably pretty typical of most retailers. I was actually going to college for uh, European history, and uh, I worked at a resort as a concierge during that time I was in school, and I happened to meet somebody with gas who was opening up some new stores in the Scottsdale, Arizona area, and that's the resort that I worked at. And she invited me to interview for an assistant manager role at one of their new stores that was opening, and so I talked to her. They offered me the job. Within about six months, I had my own store. Uh, within about six months after that, I was a district manager. And the rest is literally history. <laughs> I've worked for great companies. I worked for guests. I worked for Disneyland um, in their stores. Uh, I've worked for Barnes & Noble for six years. It has been a, a delight, you know, and I'm very fortunate that I wasn't sort of pigeonholed into one style of retail. A lot of people start in apparel, stay in apparel, start in hard lines, stay in hard lines. And I've managed to do a little bit of everything over the years. So it's been great. And I 
have found value in every single job I've had. And I use that in my blog a lot. That's awesome. That diversity, but also that the, those years that you have continued to work with retail and are continuing to work with retail, where does the passion come from and what keeps you in, in this industry? I'm slightly competitive. So, <laughs> so when I would step into a new role uh, and would sort of assess the business, uh, I was able to kind of find where we would get the biggest bang for our buck. And I'd start working with people. And I think one of the things that really set me apart from some colleagues or my predecessors in those roles was that I was very visible in the stores. A lot of people I've had um, bosses in the past call them coffee table managers and stuff like that. I'm physically there with my team so I can understand the dynamic of that individual team and how they sort of fit into the aggregate team. And I work with those things. I can find what inspires and sort of galvanizes action instead of talking about things endlessly. And that's where my passion comes from. Let's get one thing done really, really well, celebrate it, and then start adding on to what we know we can do really well. And it's sort of, you know, taken this life of its own. And I've been very lucky to have some great people. You know, certainly when I'd enter a new business, we'd have people that wanted to join in the elevation of the business, people that didn't. And we kind of sort through that. And so after some growing pains, you find your team, And you start growing the business. And it's been very exciting. And probably in the last few years, it's really about what's lacking in a lot of retailers is that leadership development. You know, they'll teach you things that you need to know about their business specifically, but not teach you things that will help you be a better leader. So that's kind of where my blog has sort of evolved is, okay, these are common leadership things and everyone can benefit from looking at themselves, how am I doing, what am I doing well, what am I doing not so well, and learning how to learn and self-develop. And so that's where my passion comes from now. It sort of evolves and is fluid based on what's happening at the moment, but that's where I am. Just out of curiosity, when when was the pinnacle moment? Oh, I don't know how you say that in English, actually. That that moment where no, you said, okay, right. I, yeah, I need to go for this. I need to create this blog. I need to, to share my my contributions to a large, larger audience. And, and also, I need to add this no jerks policy in, in my world. What, what, was that, what happened at that point? It, it, that's a perfect way to set it up. I worked for an extremely toxic, actually two, two toxic companies in my entire career. And that was where this started. I said, you know, I want to work for people who want to make people better, not people that want to break you down or publicly humiliate you or embarrass you to get some results. So I, I created my no jerks policy in 2015, stood by that, even if I start working with a company and I find that they aren't who they represented themselves to be, I extract myself from the situation. I wanna work with people with heart. I wanna work with people who wanna help other people, not who are so consumed with their own egos that it's what's in it for me. So that's really how it started. I thought, I'm going to start this blog because I know I have something to say. It was somewhat cathartic for me to get it all out. When I go back and read my early blog posts, they're almost embarrassing because they're so poorly written. And I think I shared this with you before. I, like, I'm tempted sometimes to delete them just because they're so bad. <laughs> But I keep them because it really, I like looking at my evolution. You know, I like looking at how my my mindset and my passion has progressed over the last three years with it. 
So, um, you know, that's really where it started was two toxic companies. I knew there was a better way. I knew that we could help people be better and stronger and more confident. And that's, that's where it comes from. How can I help people be better today? Very interesting. It makes me think about something I think I wrote in Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why. Uh, okay. Something about the courage maybe, but also the insight into say, taking the decision that I, I only want to work with people who share the same values or the same approach as I do. And uh, I, can, I can make a signature on my own journey as an independent consultant that that's a tough one. Yeah. That that's really really tough, and and from what you are telling me, and I of course believe you, it, it you have made you have actually lived by that rule, that I need I need to make sure that the people I work with 100% match what I'm standing for. That's uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, thank you for that. That's <laughs> nice to know that happens in the world. I cannot sign 100% on that one yet, <laughs> but that's the place we want to go. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the journey of the blog then after you made this decision and, and, and started uh, doing this and now it's 300 plus blog posts and I think I saw an old statistic that you're approaching 2 million visitors also on, on it. 2 million. And, and so, so where, just hit it yeah, next month. <laughs> how, has that, how has that journey been? It's been great. It's, you know, it's, it's still very interesting because I still, um, you know, I know sometimes that I'm writing about a topic that's very relevant and relatable. And sometimes I'll, let's say I'll post it on LinkedIn and it will get a ton of likes, which is great. It makes me feel good. I know it shouldn't, but I care about that stuff. Um, and then there's something that I think is equally relevant and relatable, but it doesn't get as much um, tension. So, you know, it's it's hit or miss sometimes, but I always write, one of the things that I try to do um, is write things that are um, important and actually happening. And I think that that's why sometimes my, my content really resonates with people. It's because I have been in those stores. I've dealt with leaders who wouldn't help, you know, those those managers be better and I think that people can understand that. And I think that it, again, is very relevant and relatable, which is, you know, great learning content. It makes for great reading for people because they're like, oh, I'm not the only one that goes through this. And I get a lot of comments and emails like that. Oh, my gosh, this is this is so, you know, nice to read that I thought I was the only one that was having these difficulties. Hmm. And I love that kind of thing. It's like, nope, let's what's your actual issue? Let's work through it right now. Uh, great. And that's what we do. Okay where the blog has t taken you now and the companies that you that you decide to work with and also get the opportunity to work with um with your understanding and continued insight into retail where would you say it is now what is, what is your take on retail at the moment uh, i think it's very strong i think that companies who are truly not just saying the word but truly innovative and I hate using this term, but people-centric, both their employees and the customer, yeah. they're the ones who are winning. It's the ones that are still using sort of the discount as their brand identity and, you know, really tight staffing and boring marketing. They're the ones that are struggling and, you know, declaring bankruptcy, maybe popping out of it for a little bit, but going back in. Um, you know, I think that we're in a great position with a lot of retail right now where there's some truly incredible companies that are changing the way we shop and changing what our expectations of our shopping experience is. And I think it's exciting. I love it. You know, I read a lot and, you know, it's just 
when I learn something new or see something new that somebody's trying something, uh, you know, I just hope for the best for them because innovation, true, true innovation, not just saying the words is so rare and so important and it should be recognized and rewarded. Mm. I think one of the things that uh, I, I talked with uh, Doc Stevens, who's a Canadian uh, retail futurist, on one of my earlier podcasts, and he, he's talking about this, that we have this perception of what innovation is in our, in our retail realm. And when we do some things that we fin- think, uh, believe is innovation, it's actually not. It's actually just improving something we already had. So what you're saying is that when we truly are able to innovate and actually establish something new for the market or for the consumers that's where we really have the possibility to to add on to the growth is that what you're, you're saying yeah absolutely right i mean so many people if you if you talk to them they'll they'll say the word we're innovative we're you know innovative with our customer experience we're innovative with our candidate experience they're not they might be good at it but they're not innovative at it and that's exactly the the difference and there are some really great retailers right now who are being innovative and who were kind of stagnant for a while that are breathing new life back into their business and that's exciting are there some some companies specifically you you are you have on top of mind when you think about people companies that are like returning even stronger than ever or getting innovative or new new on the market Absolutely. So I think Tapestry, who owns Coach and a couple other brands, um, I think they're breathing new life into their Coach brand. They really understood who their shopper was, and they changed their brand for that. And I think that that's a really bold, exciting move. I think, you know, companies like BB, who are doing something a little, you know, they went away. They were online only. All of the stores shuttered here in the U.S., But now they're starting to bring some stores back that that are very experiential. You know, it's it's exciting. There's a lot of changes happening to, um, you know, one of the statistics that I cite fairly often in my blog is by 2020, customer experience is going to be the brand differential. You know, people are going to drive farther, spend more, you know, just really enjoy the experience as long as they're given an experience. And it's not some anonymous transaction that's the difference and companies who are really embracing that customer experience piece are winning right now and they will continue to well i'm not a i'm not a futurist and i don't know all the stats on that but i think you're right on the money here and i believe it was also a little bit an old survey maybe from bain and company that said something like that 95 of all ceos this was not a retail specific uh, right. essay but but nonetheless i think it's interesting 95 of all the CEOs or leaders said, hey, we are extremely customer-oriented. We have the consumer at the heart of everything we do. And it was something like 80 or 90% said, yeah, we actually believe we're not only thinking that, we also believe we're delivering that to the customer. Yeah. <laughs> but, when, but when they asked the consumer, it was only 8% who experienced the same. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I might be a little bit off here. You're totally right. I remember that. Yes, 8% is true. That, that's kind of interesting. There's a big potential still, even though I think you're right. There's really some good tendencies happening out there. The companies that are really unique and really good and strong in creating the experience for the customer in a new and exciting and innovative way, yeah, that's the ones that are really killing it right now and in the future. Yeah. Um, when I found out that you were interested in coming on the podcast and we also had the prior conversation on what should we talk about, and yeah, then I, it, I started reading uh, some more of your blogs. I have not read all 300 plus of them. But, but, shame so, on you. Yeah, shame on me. Sorry. But it seems like you're popping out so many that I can't, I can't follow it. So uh, 
but my point is that there are so many different uh, interesting topics that we could, could take up and I was trying to figure out okay what would be most interesting I seem to find like a red, th- a red thread in what seems to be and I might be off here in, in what really tickles your interest and it seems like leadership humanship values integrity morality and, and culture and workplace happiness are like some kind of the things you're always evolving around is yes. that is that is that fair enough that is absolutely fair okay and if we should start in that realm somewhere and we should talk a little bit about retail and what tickles your mind at the moment what, what should we start with um you mentioned it uh, it's really being human you know i think we you and i spoke about this before you know we're so interested in the labels that we can assign ourselves you know we're a servant leader we're an autocratic leader if that's your thing uh you know we're this kind of learner um that we forget that we need to be everything you know we need to be we need to be able to adapt our leadership style and our support of our people to their style so you know i think that that's for me one of the important things that i write about you know we need to be warm empathetic competent in what we're doing curious and creative we don't know everything there's a better way to do something you know we need to be human beings functioning human beings we don't need to be uh, this type of leader or that type of leader we need to be something that is human for our people and i think that again we're so we tend to cling so much to our labels that we lose what we potentially could be because we are this and this is what this says we are so you know I, i think that that's really important to me and i sort of play on that in all of my articles when you say we need to be human beings where is it the retail can step up or be even stronger or, or, or when we say that we need to put it in, the human being in the, the center of everything Sure. I mean, I can give you a great example. It's, you know, I, I have an article, it's uh, something along the lines of cowardly retail leadership. You know, we so often don't address simple issues like attendance, stress codes, because we are so anxious about it mm. that we psych ourselves out of doing it and we cross our fingers and we hope it gets better and they won't do it again without mentioning it to them. And I say at least... I would say in one out of three articles I always cite my mantra and that's hope is not a strategy. We can't hope these things fix themselves unless we address it and we have the courage to address it. I mean people know when they're late, people know when they're not in dress code, let's say. Why are we not dealing with it? Why are we not having the conversation? We don't have to yell at them, we don't have to treat them like children, but we do have to open up the dialogue. And I think that's where a lot of people tend to get stuck is, oh, I don't know how to do this. I don't, you know, oh, they'll get mad at me. Oh, you know, and really it's a conversation between two adult people. My theory is if you treat people like children, they're going to act like children. If you treat people like competent, capable adults, that's what you're going to get back. At least we have to try. I totally agree with that. Totally agree with you. I think actually just recently I talked to a shop manager from a, a, a retailer And in the conversation, one of the things that was really um, taking a lot of taking up a lot of her mental energy at the moment was the fact that one of her employees, a really lovely girl, was really good, and, and they really want to work with her. But she had this little um, order order problem issue, you would say, that that kind of like was more than just something that was a thought. It was something that they really need to solve. 
Um, but they have been working around, not having that conversation for since the beginning of uh, the employment. And uh, yeah, but that, uh, I'm not saying it's a common thing, but this happens. And we need to take that honest, just helping the co colleague become even more successful. But I think there is a gap between saying it and to the place where they will actually have the confidence to do it, to take that conversation. Well, it, there is, and there doesn't need to be. It's, you know, it's like anything. It's like uh, going to get your ears pierced. You know, the anticipation piece is where people have the fear. So if we just address it, you know, and, and you and I talked about this a little bit before we started talking for this podcast, you know, I, I think that people talk in generalities, you know, okay, guys, on a conference call, let's say, I'm going to remind you guys about the scheduling accountabilities for holiday season instead of dealing with the one or two people that are the problems, you know, recognizing the great behavior and coaching the individuals who have the challenges to that behavior, I think that there's a huge disconnect. You know, they're, they're wasting, let's say on a team of 25, they're wasting 23 people's times with something they should be addressing with two people. And the two people that are the, the challenged people with it don't think it applies to them. And they might overlead 23 people here and underlead too. So that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. That's what we do so we don't have confrontation. Actually, I'm, I'm getting really curious here because these two or three concrete examples that we're giving, is we could, we could chunk it up and say there are thousands of different elements here where we have situations in our, uh, our world of, of being a leader where we, where we should address some things. I know one advice would probably be, hey, you have to take the conversation. But if we could go dig into this one, how can we help people who might listen to this one and feel this sometimes? How can they best approach this uh, situation in the, in the store or in the area or whatever? So I'll give you a recent example of something that I was involved in. Um, I was helping a company kind of sort through their coaching and um, development challenges. So we looked at their company um, at the regional level and at the DM level as a whole. It happened to be during a holiday meeting that happened about a month and a half ago. So we had the entire um, company of regionals and DMs. So there were out of, let's say, 113 districts, there were 13 really great DMs. We'll, sit, we'll talk about that level beating comps, crushing numbers, all the metrics were doing really well. They were really great leaders. And then we had about 35 that were just double digit decreases to last year. So there were 13 that were great, 35 that were terrible, and then a bunch of mediocre people in the middle. So one of the things that we did was we um, brought in a couple of the DMs and I had a conversation with those DMs and the VP of stores. So look at this report for me. Tell me what you see. And they acknowledged that they weren't doing very well. And that was all that was needed to break the ice and start having those conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, they were saying that they've been visited once by their regional in the last year. Well, why is the regional going to that district once in a year, but going to the stronger districts three and four times in a year? So then we had to start talking about, okay, so how are we managing those visits, you know, they, obviously they don't want to deal with the bad performance. It's easier to deal with the good performer because you know they're going to give you the answers that you want to hear. Um, but everybody knew it existed. They knew they were at the bottom of the list. They knew that there were challenges, but it got everybody talking and communicating and problem solving and brainstorming to figure out, okay, what do you need from us? You know, the DM, what do you need from us? And from the executives to that DM, okay, here's what we need to see from you. 
And then cutting it down to two or three things that can actually be executed. You know, was their time to fill too long? Is it just their metrics are really soft? Which two or three can we focus on? But all it was was having the conversation. Everybody knows it exists, but nobody wants to talk about it. So we were talking about it. We got it out there. We opened it up. Nobody could avoid the elephant in the room anymore. And that's, I mean, it sounds so basic, and but people just don't do it. And then there's like the more, I wouldn't call that more extreme example, more on the, along the line of if you have a, an area or a list of stores that are not performing well, very well and they have not performed very well for a longer period of time. And you, you see the motivation going a little bit down, struggling to keep self-motivation up and, and stuff like that, struggling to inspire your team, keep the engagement high. There you also see like a spiral. I experience seeing a spiral going, not even though you talk about it with them, the spiral is actually not having a positive increase. It's actually continuing to talk about the gaps, talking about the red numbers, talking about the things we didn't appreciate. I know it's about leadership style and communication, but I tend to see something, even though we might have the conversation sometimes, uh, there's also the way we are doing it or helping them, supporting them, that is not working. I don't know how you've experienced that. Well, sure. Uh, you know, again, it's an accountability issue. At a point, you have to stop talking about it and take action on it. And I think that's another place that's just another step where people don't have the confidence or just simply don't want to deal with the yucky stuff. If I, you know, if I take it and I hold them accountable for it, what if they quit? Okay, so start recruiting. <laughs> you know, again, it's all basic common sense. And it really boils down to the courage to deal with the issues that everybody knows exists. They just you know, that leader lacks the courage. I used to too. I've shared this on one of my blog posts. I would get so nervous and upset when I, because I, um, when I got into retail, I went up pretty quickly and it was because I was really good at selling and really good at merchandising. That's why I'm getting promoted. But if I had to talk to somebody, I literally, cause there was no leadership development. I would call my dad <laughs> tell him what the problem was and he would tell me what to say that was how I learned it he goes he goes they know that they did it <laughs> would you be having this conversation if they didn't you know if they didn't do x no he goes well then talk about it okay <laughs> so I go and I talk about it um you know but again I think we were so nervous about those dialogues and what they could be that we just don't address them easy stuff hard stuff crazy stuff, simple stuff. We just don't want to do it. So it's it, it kind of like touches upon the realm of leadership. And there's been a, one of your blog posts is entitled, I think something like the qualities of a great leader or a retail leader, or also something like the traits of a terrible retail leader. There was one of the blogs named. Um, yeah. So it, from your perspective and uh, what, what is a really good uh, retail leader today? Uh, I think it's somebody who has integrity, they're authentic, they're honest, and they're driven. For me, those are kind of the core qualities. I mean, you can say that there's, you know, and I have said that there's 10 other things or six other things. But the fact is, if we are actually there to support our team members and to support the business and to support our customers and to support our executives, we have to be people with integrity and courage. So integrity, authenticity, uh, being a driven profile and being, of course, honest, that would be the key drivers for being a successful leader yeah. in retail, in your opinion. Yes. Okay. 
from your experience and meeting a lot of different retail leaders, where are we strong on this right now? Where, where are we really good? <laughs> Can you have silence on your podcast? I think consistently we are not. Okay. Honestly. Um, I think some industries are getting it really right. Um, I think that people talk to each other as colleagues and not bosses, subordinates. I think that there's adult conversations taking place in a lot of industries. I think in retail, we don't. We cater to sort of the lowest common denominator in our communication. We don't act with integrity. When we peop treat people like children and don't deal with, with issues, I also think that we do ourselves a great disservice because we think we have to be super fair and equal all the time and not hold our top performers to a, you know, we don't treat them better because we don't want to offend anybody else. Um, I think that that's very wrong. I think that we need to value the people that we have. Um, you know, and, and say to everybody else, look, you want this recognition and acknowledgement, give me these results. That's the courageous thing to do. And it's, it has a lot of integrity behind it. You're telling people who have value to the business, we appreciate you and we hold you in high regard. And I don't think a lot of companies do that because they're scared that it won't, you know, somebody will be like, well, you know, that's not fair that she gets all the attention. Well, you know, she's producing three times as much work as the average person. She deserves the attention or he deserves the attention. One of the toughest balances where to find myself on the scale when working, working with different retailers and working with leadership development specifically is this about if, if I would say a lot of the companies I have worked with throughout my years in retail have had this performance-driven culture and is a performance-driven culture. And I'm not saying that's wrong or, or, or has to be deleted or, or something like that. Right. But in a time where we, ha we are speaking about being human-centric and humanship above all, which makes sense. I totally am on board on that one. Uh, human before KPIs, you know, everything about that. that. I think there is a big challenge that I see in being a retail leader in a store, in an area where you have the management group above you, challenge you on your daily KPIs, maybe two, three times a day even, to you have, you have been, just been trained on a leadership program, humanship human KPIs. It's the, about all, all focus only on the behavior. That's what creates all the results. You know that. There is a big challenge out there, I think, where you have these two things in motion. I don't know how, how your take is on that. I agree. And you and I spoke about this um, on our last conversation. You know, I think that we overlook important things in lieu of getting these checklists done, in lieu of getting the, you know, the, the dialogues that you're mandated to have. It's crazy. For me, I have worked in companies that were that structured. But what I have done in my past is have conversations with my boss and say, look, I want to go about this a different way. Here's what I'm going to do. If you don't see any changes in two weeks, I'll go back to this. I promise. But just give me two weeks. So I can show them what I can do by being the leader that I am. You know, All of these applicant tracking systems in retail are cued for this sort of checklist and laundry list of things that that role has to do. It has nothing to do with finding integrity or core competencies. We don't ask questions around those things in interviews for the most part. It is just, you know, can you work Monday through Friday, nine to five? Can you work holidays and weekends if you have to? Can you? 
it, it has nothing to do with their actual skill level. And that's, that's what kills the leadership piece is, you know, I might be a great leader, but this company has me so bound in this compliance world. I can't people. I have to have this conversation, this conversation, this conversation, and I have to get to the next door. Yeah, so we're actually some way guiding or directing people to become or continue to be managers instead of developing into the leaders exactly. we actually tell them we want them to be. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. a dilemma. That's a great dilemma. Okay, <laughs> so uh, what, does this, what does this leave us uh, right now, Elizabeth, with the things we've opened up to, to leadership and retail? We have some gaps that we need to cover in retail in terms of becoming even better leaders. Uh, what would be your best advice to, uh, let's say, a new leader, actually, It doesn't matter if it's a new store manager for the first time be getting that responsibility or it could also be changing the pipeline into becoming an area manager. What would be your right. best advice in, in entering a new role? For me, it really is about the the communication piece, um, you know, not going into a role with preconceived ideas, regardless of what, you know, I, there's a distinction between like a rebel and a troublemaker, I have always considered myself to be a little bit of a rebel in the workplace, not a troublemaker. You know, if I'm rebellious towards what the company expects of me, it's because I know there's a better way. I'm not just saying, I don't believe in this. I'm not going to do it. I explain my why. And, you know, you kind of make your own path that you know will work or you adapt it as it goes if it's not working. I am all for those rebels. At work, I'm a big proponent of being rebellious at work and not, you know, other than when it comes to the values, which every company has, but a lot don't talk about them, um, or the vision statement, which every company has, but a lot don't talk about them. They're a poster in the back room. They're a page in the manual. They sign off on it in the employee handbook that they read online. Um, you know, I think that to keep those things top of mind to your team is setting them up for success. I think if we align everybody and hire to the values, which are not, they're all kind of quiet skills, you know, integrity. We don't hire, we don't ask any questions around integrity other than have you ever been fired from a job for stealing, let's say. Um, and now you can't even ask those questions with ban the box. But um, you know, I think if we keep the focus on those pieces, we will be better served. We're going to find talent that's more aligned and more inclined to do the right thing for the company. I mean, after all, this is what the company is all about. Why are we not hiring to this? Why are we hiring to a checklist? So a good advice to an, a person entering a new leadership role for, for you would be primarily, okay, don't dare to be the little bit rebellious type that challenges of course supports the concept and, and and delivers the concept but if there's a better way and you're curious about that dare to explore it right and, and they should right and make sure that if if you're going into a new job you know from your leader that interviews you that they are going to be okay with that because if you have a boss that is strictly by the by the manual you're going to have problems. You have to work for somebody who gives you a little latitude. And in a lot of companies, there is no latitude. You have to make sure that that is aligned with the company or the person that you're working for. I mean, I've worked for, you know, one company in particular that was in hindsight, truly not great, but my boss was amazing. And that's what made me want to be number one for her. So you have to find that person and you have to be aligned in that understanding. 
And so actually it's the second point in my, from what I'm hearing you say now. It's about, of course, being aligned on how we approach our, our, our cooperation here and the approach I might take when I, second point, start to be a little bit rebellious and challenge the concept and do challenge <laughs> yes. my ways of doing it. Okay, besides those two things, are there any other tips that you would say, hey, this I think would help you uh, the best? Um, you know, I, I, not really that I can say in a very eloquent way. <laughs> Just have integrity. Do the right thing. Have conversations. Treat people like grown-ups. I mean, really, that's that's the, the crux of the the whole leadership thing is we're adults, they're adults, we're all people who are great at some things, not so great at others, and be honest and forthcoming and have a conversation. I mean, if your people are scared that you're going to talk to them, that's a you issue. I don't have a, a top five best advice or either for like, but, but I agree with your points. If there's anything I should add to, to the list, and based on what I have experienced, also making a lot of mistakes, is that it was a one of the most inspirational leaders I've ever had when I was an assistant manager, and he was my uh, store manager at the time. He said, Max, just remember one thing. When are you being measured? And I was like, uh, based on the performance we do and you know how great we are and the look of the store and blah, 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 consumer experience. And he said, no, that's not right. You are being measured when you're not there. That's great. I, I really like that one. It was yeah. like that, that's a really good test on your quality of leadership and the quality of the cooperation, the teamwork and everything. You know, that's I think your really reputation, right? Your reputation. Are things falling apart or are they standing strong? I think that, that that's fantastic. And, and just uh, if there's anybody listening to this, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made with that <laughs> was I had a uh, assistant manager at one point who is, in my opinion, one of the greatest personalities I've ever worked with, talent-wise, amazing. So he had to, um, after some months working together, he was an expert on everything we did. Every task he did was completely amazing. You know, like high level, he was just ready to become a store manager. So I went on vacation for two weeks and said, okay, you can take care of the store, no worries. And he had no questions. We were ready and, and synchronized. After week one, I got a phone call. And he said, Max, I'm not feeling good. Uh, I've lost the overview. The shop is not nice. I am not feeling well. So help me. And I totally underestimated that even though I knew on all the tasks he was very, very good, I totally misunderstood that actually taking the ownership of the store for two weeks was a completely new task. It was not just a weekend. It was not just two days in a row. It was 14 days in a busy store. Yeah. And that for me was a really good learning point that I had misinterpreted his level on that specific task. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I've mentioned that before in posts, you know, I, I think people look at the role above theirs and think, oh my God, it's a piece of cake because we make it look that way. And it is about, you know, again, being human and telling them about the things that happen during the day. And, you know, the, my days are lousy with mistakes. I make a million of them every day and you just have to sort of Uh, take a deep breath and recover and move forward. But it's a hard lesson for people to learn when they see somebody who is very good at it, yeah, <laughs> do yeah, it yeah. every day. They might know you not or not know that you made a mistake and, you know, you recover from it really quickly. But it's a totally different world. Where do you think retail is heading right now? We talked about a little bit earlier about the tendencies that's going on in 2020. You see the customer experience will be the, the, the milestone or the, the, the goal for everybody. How do you see the retail landscape five years from now? 
I see it being very vibrant, actually. I see when, you know, when we can deliver an amazing experience to our customers and whatever business we're in, I, you know, they're going to come and they're going to want to be a part of that. You know, I, I, I love shopping online. I really do. It makes me happy. But I also know that there are some things that you can't. You need to go to the store to understand what it is that you're buying. And there's companies here, I don't, I believe that they're only US based, I could be totally wrong, but there's a company called Sir Latab, which is a sort of a kitchenware company and they sell high end kitchen items. And it's beautiful and you can go in there and ask for the smallest little item and the people who work in that store will walk you through the store and tell you all of like the matching stuff and you know, you're going in there because you have a passion for cooking or baking, so do they. And it's really good marriage of interests and I think that that's what makes it so fun to go into and companies that can get that right I mean and it's cooking gadgets and you know pots and pans how exciting or sexy can you make that pretty darn sexy and exciting because yeah. I always end up with stuff I don't need <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's very very interesting what you're just saying also because uh, one of the things that I talk with, um, with with Doc Stevens about as well, and I know a colleague I had from Bestseller in the past, Bort Kwame, who worked in a, with a company called uh, Dyson. Yes. And Dyson is like, they've made it sexy to buy vacuum, vac- vacuum machines again. A, a $1,500 vacuum. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's <laughs> in, in, a, in a physical retail store. Yeah. You know, so so it's, it's about gathering people. If you're passionate about cooking, that's more obvious maybe or passionate about hunting. It's about gathering right. people and creating experience around that passion or hobby or interest that will really, really, really create success in your physical store in the future. Absolutely. I think, that, I think that's, well, that's going to really be interesting. Yeah. Well, and to use your Dyson um, example, because it's a great example, the European brand understanding of Dyson is much better than it is in the U.S. Oh, really? Much better. And they have a corporate headquarters here in the U.S. as well, but it's not run great. There's a lot of, there's there's little accountability on every front. There's not a lot of accountability. They don't really um, take time to find the right talents. So it's not as great as it is over there, which is a really interesting thing. You know, we can get it right. And I learned that a very long time ago when I was working with guests, and I had my markets, like I had Beverly Hills, so all of LA, I had New York, I had Chicago. Um, What worked in a beautiful window display, let's say in Beverly Hills, I, my first time I was going to New York, I go, oh my gosh, I sold this thing 15 times. I sold this whole bed or kitchen set 15 times because it was guest home collection. Um, I'd replicate it in New York, nobody would buy it, nobody. And there was such a huge difference in what those markets wanted. So that's another thing that companies in retail really have to look at is what's working here. Is that the same as what will work here? You know, if it's working over here, what are the challenges of it working here? Look at your people and look at what your consumer wants because they're so different. I think we talk a lot about that in concept development in different companies. We also talk about, you know, we have to be compliant. We have to secure that the customer gets the same experience so they, they understand the brand DNA and stuff like that. But I think yeah. that goes to your point here is that that is one aspect that is interesting and we should uh, have in top of mind. But we still need to be extremely careful about 
what do they want or what do they tick on or tickle on? How do you say that? What tickles their interest in New York and what tickles their interest in, in the other side of the of the U.S.? You know, exactly. Um, so and, and allowing them to be local ambassadors and local heroes in their store. I think that's Absolutely. also a key element. Yeah, we've been talking about many different things. I'm, I'm even confused about there are so many things that could be interesting What's to talk topic? about. Yeah, <laughs> so. Out of curiosity, is there anything that you say, okay, this is something that I'm laser focused on at the moment or really is interesting for me right now? Or is there something that you think we should add to the table here before we end the conversation? Um, you know, the only thing that comes to mind is actually uh, my last article that I wrote and one that I'm working on now when I have the time uh, is, you know, a lot of companies right now are in this blurry area. You know, it's fourth quarter, it's kooky and crazy. Um, you know, we have 15 different things that we have to focus on. One thing that I've noticed in the last three months is companies are falling back on describing their culture as a startup culture. I'm sorry, if you've been around for 40 years, you're not a startup culture. You're just not. So really to extract the noise from this sort of casserole of nonsense that they have going on and figure out who they are and align the team around that. You know, startup culture to me, uh, when people who are, you know, companies who are 100 years old, I've heard it from a 100-year-old company, I've heard it from a 40-year-old company, I've heard it from a 15-year-old company, and I've heard it from actual startups is you guys are lost. You have a bunch of people with differing opinions um, and egos fighting for their priorities. That's what makes you a startup culture. It's not a startup culture, it's a mess. So to really um, go back to who they are, find their vision, find their values, and rally the team around those things is really important right now because we're, we're using startup culture as a crutch to say that we are chaotic. You know, instead of saying we're a chaotic culture, we're saying we're a startup culture. Startup cultures have a pathological, sorry, startup cultures have a pathological focus on their customer, on their people, and on their vision. That's a startup culture. They know exactly what they want to do. There are impediments that get in the way of that, but they figure out how to get around those. A chaotic culture is one where there's egos in play, And they don't know who they are. And that's what a lot of companies are doing right now. And that's hurting your brand. That's hurting the customer experience. It's hurting your ability to source and recruit talent that is right for your company. And it's making your best people leave. So that's one of my things that are sort of top of mind with me right now that I get all crazy about. If you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear retailers, whoever is listening... <laughs> The message is, is, <laughs> message is received. <laughs> Elizabeth, I think we could have a lot of great conversations about retail and dig into a specific content more than we have maybe done today. Yeah. Um, if there's not a laser-focused topic we need to add to the table right now, and if you don't add it right now, you cannot sleep tonight, then I would just say uh, thank you so much for spending an hour on, on the Retail Conversations podcast. And for those of you who haven't heard or read uh, 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 Elizabeth's blog, I would uh, highly recommend it. I think it is not only interesting, it is also valuable for people on the floor, working in retail, also people not working on the floor. And you can find any topic <laughs> based on the 300 plus blogs. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and, and uh, hope to talk with you again in the future. Oh, thanks, Max. I had fun.